human organisations, they have a corporate personality. Walk into a new job and uh, you realise that there's just a, not just procedures, the way that things are done, there's, a, there's an ethos, there's a mood, there's, there's a set of reflexes that this organisation has that is actually very difficult to resist. And what's true in human organisations in general is true in spades in churches. Churches have a corporate personality. They are like an individual human being. And actually, uh, it's my conviction that churches grow and develop like individual human beings as well. Plant a new church, for instance, and it's cute, uh, pretty helpless, pretty clueless, but somehow everybody likes it. That little baby church becomes a child, you know, starting to run around, still not with much wisdom, much uh, uh, knowledge, but uh, it's an exciting place to be. Um, Sooner or later, an average church becomes a stroppy teenager. People start grumbling and there's all sorts of of, of struggles and um, change and so on. A lot of us perhaps have been in slightly teenage type of churches. Then comes young adulthood, vibrant, active, growing understanding and wisdom, really able to do things, getting more perseverance, not crying at every um, uh, grazed knee. Then middle-aged, Good often in many ways. We middle-aged people perhaps have a little bit more wisdom. But with the accompanying dangers. We've always done it that way. We couldn't try any new risky things, could we? And then, as time goes on, churches age. Churches become weaker. Churches become even more stuck in their ways. Churches become senile. Churches become feeble. Churches... (laughs) I assure you, Freud would not be jumping up and down in his seat with excitement. And you know churches die. And the, the, that, that growing, maturing, ageing process, I see again and again and again. And it's always been the case. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, said um, uh, that every work of God goes through those phases. 
And then he made an interesting observation. He said, so what God needs to do is he needs to rejuvenate his work at least once every 40 years or it dies. And that's the difference about being this body rather than a purely single human body. God can do his rejuvenating work. God can take a Uh, an ageing and senile body of Christ and make it young again. And uh, uh, that is what he has done within living memory more than once in Magdalen Road. This is our rededication Sunday. It's worth stopping and thinking about what God has done. Um, For instance, in the 1950s, there there was a real, really powerful work of God in in this church. Numbers of people converted. The church was transformed from something um, at the point of death to a lively and vibrant uh, congregation. And then, uh, actually, before I came, the process began again and then continued um, uh, uh, after after I came, and actually that can be painful. Um, those of us who've been around for the last decade or so have have seen Magdalen Road rejuvenated, but actually, to be honest, that in in certain ways sometimes became rather childlike. Perhaps it was more exciting than a stable, steady, um, slightly over-the-hill type of feel. But it had all the weaknesses of childhood about it. And those of us who have lived through uh, the, the last decade have felt that, I think. I was thinking about those things as I prepared for this Sunday. I've been thinking now for for a number of weeks, what does the Lord want us to hear on our rededication Sunday? What is his message to us today? And I want want to suggest to you what what it may be. Um, It's a clear message in that reading in Ephesians 4. And I think if we take hold of it, if we grasp it, if we really live it as a church for the next year, it, it could be a very powerful message for us at this time. The message is simple. We need to mature. There are times in a church's life when, when we need to renew our youth and God does that and has done that. There are times in a church's life when the church needs to recognise it's time to move to the next stage of maturity. As I've prayed over that for the last uh, few weeks, I have felt um, that is very important for us. Let let me explain a little bit more why before we get into Ephesians chapter 4. 
over the last decade or so, we, we have developed a culture which I love, which I'm delighted about, which I'm really, really pleased about. It's a culture that says it is okay to be not okay. Does that make sense? It is okay to be hurting a bit. It's okay to be feeling a bit vulnerable. It's okay to be deeply aware of your weaknesses. It's okay to feel a bit wounded. It's okay. I remember in the early time that I was here, uh, a, a student who came and I said, well, why do you come to Magdalen Road? And he said, oh, well, I, I, I judge a church by whether I can cry in it. And he felt there was enough freedom and enough acceptance amongst us uh, in those days for that to be okay. He wasn't going to be looked at as some weird monster. I think the church must have that culture and must preserve that culture. I think it is absolutely essential because we believe in grace. We don't believe you make yourself good enough and then you can come to Jesus. We believe that Jesus comes to us before we're good enough. That's what grace is about. He loves to give to those who do not deserve it. It's essential because um, God himself is described precisely as the God who is close to the brokenhearted. The broken in spirit. It's essential because Jesus said it again and again and again. Do you remember talking to the self-righteous? He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We need to model that. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save what is lost. Not, not what had confidently found him, but wandering sheep out on the hillside whom he went out and drew to himself. Remember Jesus reached out to lepers whom everybody considered unclean and touched them. Now, it is, it is really, really important that we preserve that sense that you can be amongst us and, and not be okay. It's alright, you're not going to be treated as some, some outsider to be avoided. It's okay not to be okay. But what I want to say to you is that we mustn't slip into the idea that it is okay to stay not okay. That I want to impress upon you. Really, really important. Jesus came for sinners. He came for the sick to make them well. He came to seek the lost, to bring them home. He came and touched lepers 
and they were healed and clean. We need to be a community who not only welcomes one another when we are feeling broken and weak and unclean perhaps, but who encourage one another, build one another up, strengthen one another in the power that the Spirit gives so that people don't stay there forever. But they are made um, shaped by Jesus Christ into the people that they're called to be. The New Testament has this dual emphasis on grace and growth. Jesus comes to us where we are, but he also changes us. And that's a big part of what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. We're not going to study every word of that um, reading that Gwyneth brought to us. We're going to look at just some of the things that the Apostle speaks about in Ephesians 4 and try to um, uh, apply it to ourselves at the beginning of this new year. And the first thing I want to point out to you uh, in verse 14 is, the, is, is, the, is what you could say is the danger that Paul highlights that we've already been speaking of. He um, uh, is determined that these Ephesian believers should not be immature. Verse 14, Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. No longer, he says, that is the purpose of gathering together, to no longer be like that. To no longer be infants. He's using a pretty... um, Challenging term there. They, they, they had, um, uh, like we, like in the English language, we have various um, uh, terms for young people. There were babies, babes in arms. And he's not using that term quite. But then you graduated from a being a babe in arm to being um, a, fe- a toddler. That would probably be the closest word for us. Definitely not more than four, four, four years old. Okay? So think of the, four, the three, two, three, four-year-olds amongst us. Think about them. Think about how they react. They're very cute, aren't they? I mean, they're great. But don't trust them. No. Don't, don't, don't give them a cup of coffee to carry. Don't leave them alone with the PA desk. You hear the piano playing, don't you? I don't want you to be like that, says Paul. They're untrustworthy, they're unskilled, they, they have to be looked after all of the time. 
I don't want you to be like that. I want you to grow, grow up. He uses another image which perhaps captures the, um, one of the key things that he, he notices in toddlers. He uses the image of a storm at sea. Then you'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind. Um, Paul had seen a few storms in, it, in his time and he knew how, uh, how utterly terrifying they were, uh, they are, and how, how helpless you feel in them as wave after wave comes and you just sit there and the wave comes and crashes over you and you can't do anything about it. He had been, uh, he was in a storm, remember, once in, it, once in his life where the wind just drove them and they couldn't get, couldn't get to shore and he had no control, blown here and there, he speaks of here. You see that in infants, don't you, little toddlers? They're not the master of their circumstances, they are the victims of their circumstances. You know, and they, they just respond helplessly. You know, the, the, they fall over and hurt their knee, so they cry. Someone else has to think, well, you perhaps actually need to be a bit more sensible in how you run. They, 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 um, they are, of course, delighted by good things that, uh, that, that come their way. But immediately that's ruined by the next bad thing that comes along. They're just tossed around, aren't they? And Paul is deeply aware that Christians can be like that. Yes, they are believers. Yes, they have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Yes, God has placed his spirit on them. Yes, they are a new creation. But they're toddlers. He speaks of three things, actually, that we can be at the mercy of. And I want to pick those three things out and uh, uh, spend a bit of time looking at them before we move on. The first thing we get blown around by, he says, is every wind of teaching. See that in verse 14? Blown here and there by every wind of teaching. The church in the UK is sadly prone to this. I've been a Christian for a while now and dearie me, the list of of the next wave of exciting things that passes through the British church has just got incredibly long. Let me remind you of a few of them you may be aware of. The church growth movement, seeker-sensitive services, the Toronto Blessing, 10-step programs, the purpose-driven church, emerging church, and on it goes. I mean, the list is astonishingly long. And let me say, none of those things that I've listed and many others is all bad. They are valuable insights. I take an interest in them. And I hope you will at times. They sometimes point things out which are good and that we need to take notice of. But we don't need to be blown around by them. Don't need to be tossed around by them. In that circumstance, they just become fads. 
We will not be faddish in this church. I hope we will be responsible and responsive to the way that the, 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 the culture is moving. I hope we won't be, be sort of middle-aged and stuck in our ways. But we must not be blown around by every wind of teaching. Essentially, you know, God's church has not changed in 2,000 years. I've increasingly, the last uh, few years, spent my time reading some very, very ancient authors. And although um, you have to get through some... uh, stuff that is not entirely irrelevant, I am just amazed that 2nd century authors, 4th, 5th century authors, were speaking about exactly the same things that we're talking about now. Dealing with exactly the same issues. Coming to exactly the same passages of scriptures, prescribing exactly the same solution. Don't be tossed around by every wave and wind. And it has to be said, there are a proportion of Christians that spend their time wandering around, looking for a church that has got the thing that will solve their problem. Now, let me say, there, there may be perfectly good and godly reasons for uh, pe- people moving churches. It, it happens and sometimes it can, be, uh, it, it can be a sensible and positive thing, not least if you obviously geographically relocate. But there are also phases of life and all sorts of issues like that. I don't, don't want you to hear me wrong. But I do know that there are a proportion of people for whom there is just that rather infantile hope that the next church, the next church will have the answer. We need to grow up. Actually, by and large, we mature through the long, sometimes difficult, sometimes painful process of living together as a body of believers. Don't be tossed back and forth by every wind and wave of teaching. And let me say as well, The wind from outside of God's church is blowing very, very strong today. If if there is a concern within the church of, uh, uh, of people getting excited about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, that is ten times worse outside. And you will find a positive gale sometimes of opinion against you if you stand up as a Christian. Can we really still teach and live Christian morality? Ridiculous. 
especially sexual morality, says the world. Yeah, young people um, have to have to have have resolution of iron, frankly, in our culture to really believe that it is worth living the way that Christians have always lived. Because everything about our culture says the opposite. Can we really believe that simply acquiring more property, getting richer and rising on the, on the, uh, the, the career ladder and gaining more, more approval from the world is worthless compared with one word of approval from Christ? That's what Scripture says. God is interest, uh, interested in us using his gifts that he's given us to a maximum advantage. But he is not remotely interested in us using those gifts to gain money, fame, power, authority, respect. Only to bring glory to him. Do we believe that? I tell you, you, you have to be an oak tree in this culture to stand up against the gale of opinion against that. Christians are getting sacked from their jobs. Judges in family courts are having to resign. Shop workers are being sacked. Registrars are being demoted because they have stood up for their faith. The storm is rising and we need to be people who are not toddlers, not tossed around by every wind of teaching, but people who somehow have grown to be able to stand in the storm we need to be mature. The second thing that tosses us around after uh, every wind of teaching, Paul um, uh, uses a, a phrase that the NIV translates, the cunning of men, I think. Um, the cunning and craftiness of, of men there. It's literally um, um, the dice playing of men and I think probably in a modern idiom you could you could put it the games people play think about that for a minute we're just tossed around by the games people play aren't we People have become sophisticated manipulators of one another. We indulge in it sometimes. I, I, I've, I've seen so many games played in relationships. Im, implicit threat. I've, I've seen a husband who who was determined to get his own way with his wife. 
and he just generated an atmosphere that he was so determined he was prepared to go for divorce if she pushed it that way and it would be her fault. So of course she backed down for years and years and years till finally he went off anyway. Those games start when we're young. They start with in the playground. They, 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 they start in young adulthood where we start to learn to manipulate people and position people to our maximum advantage. We do it to others more too often and they will certainly do it to us. The, the sulk. It's a good one, isn't it? No, 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 I'm not annoyed. Just silent. The spreading of rumours and gossip. Selective use of information. Getting people on my side against him or her or them. On, on the list goes. People play games. They always have. And as believers we need to move beyond immaturity to the maturity that stands up and simply says the truth. I don't mean with no thought about how other people may receive it, with no care for them or all of those, those sorts of things. There are legitimate ways in which we may need to be gentle and careful in how we deal with one another but not as a game, not to manipulate them. There's a, there's a word in the New Testament, um, uh, the Greek is, is paresia, which is sometimes translated boldness, but more accurately simply means straightforwardness. We don't peddle the gospel, says, uh, says Paul, rather we simply speak with straightforwardness. Don't play games. And more than that, don't be manipulated by people who play games. Learn to stand up clearly for Jesus and speak what he wants you to speak and not worry about the games that others play. And then the third... um, thing that tosses us around says the apostle is deceitful schemes and I don't think Paul here means you know sort of some secret plan like the gunpowder plot or something like something like that if you read the New Testament the, the deceitful schemes are the schemes to Get rich. The uh, uh, seed that fell amongst the uh, the thorns was choked by, uh, uh, Jesus said, the deceitfulness of wealth. The deceitful schemes that 
that, that encourage you to think that sin is okay, whatever. Sin deceived me, the Apostle says in, Roman, uh, in Romans chapter 7. All the different ways in which other people and we may be deceived by this world so that we have a scheme to do X, Y or Z which is actually a foolish project. Stand up against it. Identify it as the deception that it is. Little three to four year olds, they're easily deceived, aren't they? I can do magic tricks to little three year olds and they actually are amazed. I cannot do magic tricks to anyone over the age of about five. They see through me. But three and four year olds are gullible. How atrocious to think that we may be as gullible as three or four year olds. in just buying wholesale the deceitful schemes of this world and being tossed to and fro by them. So there we are, I feared that we wouldn't look at a lot of this chapter. That is the danger that Paul sees. Immaturity. Immaturity that's like being a child, that's, that's childlike. Immaturity that is like being tossed around in a storm. Don't be like that, he says. Mature. Grow. Look at, um, look at how he describes that in verses 12 and onwards. Um, we glanced in just a little while at the earlier verses, but then the purpose of what he's talking about in the earlier verses is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And what he's doing there is he's building and building and building and building what he wants to say. The first thing he says is that uh, um, uh, Christians are um, made to perform works of service. Okay? We were made to work. To work within the life of the church, to work outside in, uh, 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 of the life of the church. To do good things with our lives to glorify Jesus. But then he builds on that. The second thing he says is that uh, that process builds the body of Christ uh, so that the body of Christ, second half of verse 12, may be built up. In other words, he's saying Christians are like honeybees, not mason bees. Honeybees have a complex social structure. And they function and are incredibly successful precisely because of that complex social structure. Not every bee can do everything. There's the queen, there are drones, there are workers. 
but together they all thrive. Mason bees or mining bees and leafcutter bees, most species of bees in this country are solitary bees. They have to do all the work themselves and live essentially on their own. Now that is not you, if you're a believer. You were not made to be like that. Our culture says that we are. More than that, our culture says that actually the only time you gather together, you gather together if in doing so you can get more advantage to yourself immediately. So that ultimately you are completely on your own, even if you, if you read the marriage books um, from outside of Christianity, they are often couched in terms of how to get the most out of your partner. So you're on your own, says our culture. And the Christian gospel, the Christian message says you are not on your own, you were made to live as a great big organism which is called the body of Christ. And not everybody can do everything, but as each part does its work, the whole works together. We are honeybees, not solitary bees. Third, building of the picture then we perform works of service. We do that within the context of, 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 of being a complex organism. We serve beyond and within as, a, as an organism that works together and therefore in the world is the body of Christ. Third thing then he builds on until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, what we are united by is what we trust or who we trust. We trust that Jesus died for our sins. So now, if you're a Christian here, you are part of a community for whom there is now no condemnation. We trust and believe that the Holy Spirit will guide us, the Holy Spirit will mature us, the Holy Spirit will help us to defeat sin. We trust and believe that God will never abandon us. I will never leave you or forsake you. That which he has begun, he will bring to completion. There is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We trust that. We trust that actually our destiny is not to just to grow old and die, but our destiny is to be reborn, to be resurrected, to, to be, be brought into a physical kingdom that so far no eye has seen or ear has heard, but it is an amazing kingdom that God has prepared for us. That is the faith that Paul is talking about and that is what brings us together. And then he sums it up by saying it's in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, central to all of those things is Jesus Christ himself. And he uses a a term for knowledge which doesn't just mean intellectual knowledge, it means personal knowledge, it means relational knowledge, it means being in relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what holds us together, that is what will make us this maturing community. And then he goes on 
So we are all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and become mature, as the NIV puts it, or, or, or become the, 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 the mature man, it says actually, literally, not even mature person, mature man. And scholars um, suggest that the reason why it uses that phrase is because it's drawing on this idea of us becoming like Jesus himself. He is the mature man. And certainly the, the uh, explanation that then follows it um, uh, uh, says that. Attaining the full measure of the fullness of Christ. God's project in this place amongst us is amazingly to make us a community of people who function as one body and that one communal body somehow starts to resemble Jesus. in his maturity, in his fullness, as Paul puts it. Imagine that. Imagine us together starting to have the wisdom of Christ. Imagine us together starting to exhibit the love of Christ. Individuals doing it and together it happening. Imagine us together starting to have the courage of Christ who stood up against all opposition and even faced death. Imagine us starting to have the power of Christ. Jesus promised his disciples you'll do greater things than me and I think what he meant was that corporately got his church could do more than him. Well, that is the vision that is set before us. Imagine finally that we have the relationship with God that Christ did. See, amazingly, the Holy Spirit that we were talking about on our weekend away, Graham was telling us, he gives us a relationship with God where we call God Abba, Father. I think the New Testament uses that phraseology precisely to say, Jesus called his Father Abba and you can have a relationship which mirrors that in certain respects. That's what we're called to. I want to say to you, okay, it, it, is, it is okay to be here and not feel you're there yet. It is okay to be here and feel, wow, there's, got, there's a lot that's got to happen to me before I can start to live up to that. I feel like the three to four year old. I want to say to you, that's okay. Jesus loved little children. He loves us when we feel vulnerable and fragile. But I want to say to you as well, it is not okay to stay not okay.
He wants you to no longer be an infant. He wants you to be no longer tossed around by the sea and every wind of teaching. He wants you to grow. And I believe God's calling on us as a church is to be a church which models that, which gives that message loud and clear to one another that, that has that in our corporate personality as we grow. We haven't, simply haven't got time to look in detail at how, but let me just say a couple of sentences about how. How do we do it? Well, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors and teachers, some to be evangelists to prepare God's people in that way. I'm a bit of a drone, alright? I'm useless. Um, uh, I'm not a worker bee in the colony and uh, you might be tempted to throw me out because um, uh, lots of people are out there doing much more and there are a few useless people in the heart of the colony. But you see, drones in honeybee colonies are really useful. You have home group leaders, you have over the summer you've seen there are a range of people whom God has really gifted to teach his word they are precious because they help us to understand but it's for all of us as well speaking the truth in love verse 15 we will grow up into him who is the head I used to think that that was just sort of not telling lies but it's more than that in this context. The truth is the truth about God. That's why we all get unity in the faith, knowledge of Jesus, because we speak the truth about Jesus. Do that to one another. Let the truth of Jesus really be spoken amongst us. But it's not just us. We have Jesus here personally to do amazing things amongst us.